Today's scripture is Acts 13, 13 through 20. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidia and Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word from exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Um, we have been meeting as a governing board constantly and as elder board coming together and, uh, and trying to discern together what do we do? What are our steps? Um, what does it look like for us to gather? How do we keep things safe? And so we have come up with a plan. Our, pl- our plan is threefold. Um, and here's basically how it's going to work. Okay, we have three phases. Phase one is, is happening now. We have house church here. We had house church here last week. Some of them are bigger. Some of them are smaller. Um, phase one is already in motion. On Thursday nights is when we record this. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe you thought we were like recording this on Sunday morning. We're not. It's Thursday night right now. And so, if some big news happened, by the way, between like tomorrow and Sunday, I'm not going to talk about it because it's Thursday. Um, now, phase one, here's what it's going to be. Um, house Church is attending every Thursday night uh, at our, service, our recording services. We, um, masks are required for everyone who's not on a microphone at any given time. Um, and uh, that's easy. We're already doing that. That's phase one. Phase two starts up in November. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, phase two in November, it's going to go from November till mid-December. We're going to start opening up attendance for our Thursday night recording. Um, no kids just yet. No children's ministry yet. And we're going to limit it to 50 RSVP only. Um, like you're going to sign up on the website. We'll have more instructions in details about that as we go. But that'll be the Thursday night recordings. We're going to do that until about mid-December. Um, I believe they have a specific date picked out. I don't remember what it is at the moment. 13th? Possibly the 13th, okay. When that date comes around, uh, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna move into phase three. Um, And in phase three, uh, I put question marks because I didn't know. Apparently it's the 13th. Um, Sunday Sunday morning, Siri just thought I was talking to her. Relax. Um, Sunday morning is going to, we're gonna start recording on Sunday mornings and we're gonna do this live. We're gonna live stream on Sunday mornings and you'll get to see all the mistakes and all the mess ups and it's gonna be awesome. Um, And we're gonna, Every Sunday morning, we're going to meet here at regular church times, probably about 10.30 or so. We're going to live stream the service. Uh, We're going to open up We Watermark. We're going to have RSVP of of up to 50 people inside. And we are working on a way to, because the weather's cooling down. It's Florida. This is when things get nice and life starts getting a little better. We're working on a way to have a uh, overflow outside for upwards of 100 people, maybe more. We'll see. Um, and um, we're working on that. It's going to cost us a little bit of, of money here and there. If like, you're interested in helping us out with that, uh, give us a, shoot us an email and give us a call. Uh, there's, a, there's a phone number down here, I believe, to the right. It's floating in midair. And there's an email. If, so if you need help, email us. If you can help, uh, text us. Um, and so we'll have 50 people in here, and we'll have a bunch of people outside, and we'll have Watermark Ministry, like we, we Watermark going. And uh, we're going to do this very carefully. Um, if anyone gets, gets sick at all, we're shutting it down. Just, we're just doing the best we can. And uh, it's been a long year, about nine months since we've all gathered together in any way. So um, 
We're going to do that, and we're going to try to plan a nice Christmas service outside, nice Christmas caroling, sort of candlelight evening thing. It's going to be beautiful. So we're working on that. Uh, I thank you guys for supporting all of us through all this and how difficult this whole thing has been. And uh, I just cannot wait until, like, to see a bunch more people and to get people back in here. So continue to pray for that um, as we move towards that. Um, and so I'm going to move into our time of... Uh, of teaching now. Again, we are in Acts chapter 13. Interesting passage today. We're going to talk about um, resurrection. We're going to talk about what it means. We're going to talk about what Paul was doing in that synagogue. And um, Mike, I'm looking over here sometimes, right? Hi. Hi. What's up? I'm going to look over there. So um, uh, yeah, let's pray and then let's jump into the, our passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for your word. Thank you for these ancient people who... Um, who wrote these things down for us to keep and to study, to send to their brothers and sisters who needed them, um, who needed help through difficult times, through tribulation, through trials, um, through church history, through previous pandemics, and all of the ways that your word, that your scriptures has guided us um, along the path. And I pray that we would continue to do so. I pray that we would uh, remain... um, faithful to you, trusting in you, allegiant to you alone, especially in this time of all these other people calling for our allegiances. I pray that, that in this evening that you, would, um, that you would speak to us something that we need to hear. Give us a word that, that is important for us for where we're at now. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. All right, so um, I'm going to talk about missions work because here's what's going on. Paul and Barnabas um, are beginning to invent this thing called missions. And we are very familiar with missionaries. We're very familiar with the work that they do and missions. And we know what it looks like. We've all met missionaries. In this day and age, in the first century, missionaries didn't exist. People didn't proselytize. They didn't go city to city trying to get people to believe in their God. Why would they? There's no reason for this. Gods were geographic back then in their minds. Um, If you moved into a new city, then you would need their God. But if you did that, you were leaving your God behind, so you would need one anyways. Like, there's not, there's no ancient sort of model of people traveling city to city teaching about their God and proselytizing and getting people to convert. So what these guys are doing is brand new. It has never happened before. Um, and, <clears throat> and remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about how what happens is the first thing they did when they got to a new city was they went to the synagogue and... That was the first audience that they found in every city. Those were the first people that they spoke to, that they reached out to. Um, and the reason for that was because, again, remember, this message was to the Jews first. Their entire story was to the Jews, was to lead, leading, up, leading up to the inclusion of the Gentiles um, through the establishment of God's kingdom. So first you have to talk to the Jews and you have to tell them, God is setting this up, God has brought this together, it is now time, everything you have been waiting for. So they enter into the synagogue um, and they're standing there and they're preaching. Paul enters in and... They start in the same way a lot of ancient synagogue teachings would start. They start by telling the Jewish people their story back to them once again. Um, Every time they gather together, there's certain stories that they would tell. um, The Exodus story, um, oftentimes the creation narrative. Um, There there was a few, like like the the establishment of of the... uh, 
the tabernacle, the meeting with God at Sinai, the covenants, Abraham, Moses. There's certain stories that they would tell over and over and over again. And so what happens is I didn't have Joseph read the entire passage, but the entire passage is very long. I encourage you to read it this week. Um, but he tells the entire history, starting with like Exodus and all that, all the way up to Christ. And he tells them their whole history. And he gives them, he basically takes their story farther then they may have ever heard it told before. Because remember, these people were not familiar with Jesus at all. And he takes it farther than before. Um, he tells them more than they have ever heard. And Paul includes an entire next chapter in their own story. Um, and this would have caught their ear. This would have been like, hold on. Oh, he's, he's going farther. He knows more than we know. He has more to say. Um, and so he tells them indeed that their Messiah that they had been waiting for, that was foretold for generations had come, that it is the crucified, the risen Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Messiah is a, a, a um, Christ. It, it's, a, it's a Jewish word for uh, anointed one. It means king. It means your king is here. The king you've been waiting for this whole time is now here. Um, and I want to read to you how he describes what happened to Jesus. Um, it's a little long. Stick with me. Um, it's all right here. So here we go. Uh, verse 29 through 37. It says, um, this is Paul speaking in the synagogue to the people. Though they found no proper ground for, for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people. And we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I become your father. God raised him up from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also elsewhere stated, uh, stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Now, you'll notice the story that he is telling back to them. He ends it with the resurrection, and he emphasizes the resurrection. He says, all of the other prophets before have died, and that was the end. They decayed. Jesus died. His body didn't see decay. He has risen, and to this very day, he has, his body has not seen decay. So, he's emphasizing the resurrection as if it is the missing piece that they have been looking for. Now, um, the questions that sort of pop up in people's heads as they read this is, um, if, if you're not really familiar, uh, if you didn't know about the resurrection and you see the reaction these people have, one of the questions you would have is, like, why would the proclamation that Jesus has risen from the dead be of any use in arguing, uh, in, in arguing that following Jesus as the Messiah is the way forward? Why does it matter so much to these Jewish people, that the story ends with Jesus being raised from the dead. What is the significance if you're telling God's, if you're telling the people's story of their relationship with God, of telling it everything that they have always heard before and getting here, what is so huge about adding this chapter? Resurrection. Why is that such a big deal? Um, to understand that, um, and the fact is it's, it's a massive deal. This would have been groundbreaking for everyone who was standing there in the synagogue listening. Um, to understand why this is such a groundbreaking idea, we have to look at the first century understanding of resurrection. We have to see it through the eyes of the other Jews who were gathered with Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue that day. As he's standing in the middle and they're standing around the outsides and listening to him speak and tell their story and then include the resurrection of Jesus, what was going through their heads at the time? Why is resurrection such a big deal? So 
If we want to see this, we have to go through their eyes. And I think the best place to do this that I have found in the scriptures is in the Gospels. It's in John chapter 11. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Perhaps you've heard this before. Um, And so basically what happens is Jesus is in a city far away and he hears that Lazarus is sick. um, And then he gets another message that he's dead. And Jesus Jesus stands up and takes his disciples and he travels to the city where Lazarus was living. Now, Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Um, these were, this family was old friends of Jesus. He knew them. He loved them. And he's really mourning and he's sad that, that Lazarus has died. And it's, it's going to get to the point where he's going to weep. Um, and eventually, he's going to perform this incredible miracle where he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in the sight of all the people. And if you know the story, there's all these little interesting details where he's like, go ahead and roll the stone away. And they're like, but it's been three days. And he's like, I know. And they're like, but he's gonna, it's going to stink. It's going to smell really bad. And he's like, Roll the stone away. Um, And so in the midst of all of this, there's this conversation that people skip over that I think is vital for understanding what's happening. Um, Jesus shows up and Martha runs out to the streets to meet him there. And there's this back and forth. uh, And I want to put it up here. I want to read it to you. It It says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So there's this little one-off conversation where Jesus says one of his amazing seven I am statements Um, it's I am the resurrection and the life. Now, you can tell when they're talking about resurrection here, Jesus says, hey, your brother's gonna rise again. And she goes, oh, I know this. I know he is. He's gonna rise again on the last day. And then Jesus is obviously not talking about that. Um, So they're talking about two different meanings of resurrection, their ideas. She's talking about this thing that the Jewish people believed that would happen in the future, Um, that they believed there would come a moment where all of God's people would rise again from the dead, the Jewish people, to populate the new kingdom. Um, And they believed that it would happen in one day on the day of the Lord. Now, believing in resurrection in the first century, believe it or not, was not popular. The Jews were some of the only people that believed in resurrection, and it wasn't even all the Jews who believed in resurrection. The vast majority of people did not believe in resurrection. They thought that was a really stupid idea, and the reason is is because most of them were sort of Gnostic, Platonists, Hellenists. They were sort of, they believed that the body was like this container. Like, it didn't matter. What mattered was what was inside the container. So it's sort of like when you get an Amazon package on your porch, the body is like the box, and the soul is like the thing that you ordered. All right, and if you don't remember, if you order a bunch of stuff and you're not sure which one it is, you're like, oh, this is exciting. What's it gonna be? Napkins. Um, And you throw the box away. You've never needed the box. The box was a container. And so in the ancient world, the human body is a container. It's useless. It it wasn't something that the people believed would resurrect because it had no purpose. The purpose was to be free and fly away. By the way, a lot of evangelical Christians believe this today. Um, That is Plato. That is Gnosticism. That's that's not Jesus. Um, Jesus... And Martha believe in resurrection, but it appears they're talking about two different kinds of resurrection. So again, she believes what all the Jewish people believe, most of the Jewish people believe, not the Sadducees, that there would come a moment when all God's people would rise. 
And it, it wasn't just that all God's people would rise. It was a moment when everything would be resurrected, not just people, everything. Everything would be set right. It was a moment when their Davidic king would appear and the world shifts back into its right order again. Everything right now is sort of upside down. There are people ruling and they're selfish and they're warring and there would come a moment when everything would be turned right side up again and there would be a gracious, humble, loving, merciful servant king who would bring about a perfect rule of peace in this world and who would set everything back in order, who would wipe every tear from every eye, who would instantly usher in justice and mercy and depression, set the prisoners free, all of the things that we think are impossible. And this would happen. And it would happen in tandem with resurrection. So what she is talking about, what Martha is talking about, is there would, she, my brother, yes, he's going to rise again on the day that we all do and the day everything is put right. But until then, I'm suffering. And I've lost him. And Jesus isn't talking about that same thing at all. Um, Jesus is talking about now. And here's the thing. If resurrection, if, if what Jesus is saying about resurrection is true, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, resurrection is here, it has come, it is me, I am here. And I'm going to show you what it means. If resurrection has suddenly come, that means something. It means several things. It means the world has found its true king. That means he's present. That means the kingdom of God is at hand, which is surprisingly exactly what Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, it means that he's now, that this king that has come is going to bring ultimate peace, is going to wipe away every tear, bring healing, blessings to the nations, proclaim what call, what's called the day of the Lord's favor is how he started his ministry as well. He goes, I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the oppressed and the prisoner, uh, and to bring about the day of the Lord's favor. The day of the Lord's favor if you don't understand, I've talked about this a few weeks ago, is the message of Jubilee. Jubilee was a celebration every 50 years. All debts were canceled and reverted. Everything that was owned, that was borrowed, that, was, that people were heavily in debt, they were free of that debt. Everything went back the way it was. It's like starting, it's like flipping the Monopoly board over, putting it back down. Let's roll number one again. Everything is distributed Everything goes back to the way it was. It was a day of perfect justice and perfect peace in the world where nobody any longer had any want and nobody was in debt to anyone else. Um, and it was a huge deal. The world made right, put back in order, reset, God and humanity dwelling in the same space. So when Martha talks about her brother's um, future day, Jesus awakens her to this other thing. He says, no, 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 no. That time has come, that thing you've been waiting for. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Whoever lives, believes in me. Whoever lives by believing in me will never, will never die. Do you believe this? When Jesus says this, he's claiming that the future that we've all been dreaming of, that it's here and that it's available right now because of Jesus. And the question is, how is this possible? How can Jesus say that? How can Jesus tell this woman who has just lost her brother, resurrection is here, it is now? This great thing that you've been waiting for from the very beginning that all Jewish people have been waiting for, it is here, it is in me, and I have brought it to you. And at that moment, she's like looking at him like, I, my brother's dead, and you're here, and you're crying. 
How is this possible? How could this be? Now, let's leave that there for a second. Um, I want to try to give you, sort of paint some pictures for you to help you understand what Jesus is doing. Imagine with me that you have gone to a new city that you've never been to, and you've pulled up um, your map program, and you've decided, hey, I want to go see a park. I want to go to a forest. That's where I want to go. So you decide, okay, uh, I'm going to put in the, 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 the coordinates for this thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to follow the directions on the map app, and I'm going to follow it all the way and drive all the way out to the forest, and I want to, go to, I want to take a walk on the forest and enjoy creation. And you get there, and when you get there, all that is there is like this field, as far as you can see, in every direction. And like you're like spinning around, and like it's, it's, I feel like I'm in the, the Windows XP cover. Like there's nothing here. Like it's, there's nothing. There's, there's, no, there's no trees. Why is this on the map? Why does it say it's the so-and-so forest? Like where's the forest? And as you're looking around, you look down, and there is a little like sapling, and it's got a little red ribbon on it. And you notice next to it, there's another one, and there's another one. And you realize, oh, there's these tiny saplings everywhere. Some of them have ribbons, some of them don't. And you realize, like, oh, wait a minute. This is something else. And so you get down low, and and as you get down low, you have this perspective where you can see, oh, okay. This is a forest, but they've marked it on the map too early. But it is here, it is present, and it has been planted, and it is growing. And I bet if I stick around for another 75 years, I could take a nice walk in these woods. And so what happens is the map maker has seen, like he's laid it all out and he's gone ahead and drawn the map as it one day will be. But the fact is, this field's days are numbered, okay? This field is coming to an end and soon there will be no more field, okay? And he now knows and the map maker knows and you know and a select few people know as they stand in the field and they look out, they're like, yeah, this field is on its way out. It's about to end. Um, And so the map maker has drawn the map as it one day will be. And unless you look at it from the right angle, you cannot understand why the field has been designated as a forest when it looks like it's just a field. This is kind of like what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving you a perspective that you've never had before. When I was 12 years old, uh, my family moved from Los Angeles, um, people on top of people everywhere. We moved from the middle of Los Angeles to Pasco County, about 40 minutes north of here into the swamps um, so my dad could run this ministry, like this youth ministry up there. Um, I'm going to be honest, I hated it. Florida was terrible when we first got here. I kind of like it now. I wouldn't live in California now. Um, Been back a few times. Nice place to visit. Um, But when I was 12, we moved here and my parents bought four acres of land and we went out to see it and it was just, you couldn't see anything. It was Florida jungle, and I had never seen Florida jungle. There's not, I don't know if you've, if you've not been to Los Angeles, there's no bugs there. I don't know if it's just natural that there's no bugs or if all the pollution has killed them all. There's no bugs, and it's pretty nice, but here there's somehow every species of bug, but like 12 different versions of every species of bug, and they were everywhere, and we're walking through these thick, thick woods, and my dad gave, I'm the youngest of three brothers, so I have one brother who's a year and a half older than me, and one that's three, three, I don't know, he's older, um, and he gave us all like machetes, which was awesome. Um, and we had to clear this four acres of land that was just jungle all the way to a lake. And so every Saturday we would come out and we would just, we didn't have any tractors, we didn't have any electric tools or anything. We just started hacking and chopping the woods and we carved out the whole thing. And once we had carved out the whole thing, my parents took these pegs and they put them in the ground and they 
they stretched this uh, rope across around in a giant square and they said, this is our home. And they brought us in and they said, this is our home. And I couldn't see it and I'd understand. I had never seen, I'm 12, I had never seen a house being built. All the houses were always built already. They were all standing there. We lived in the middle of the city. Like I'd never seen, I didn't understand like, okay, I don't see it. My home, when I picture it in my head, is our house in California. Like that was my home. Um, and so every night they would sit at a dining room table. We were kind of living in a hotel room and they would spread out the blueprints on the, on the, on the table in the hotel room and we would look, look at them and I didn't understand what I was looking at. Nothing made sense to me. And, and my mom noticed that I, had, I could not tell what was happening. Like I didn't know. I didn't understand how are we going to live here? Where's our house? What are we going to do? I've never seen a house built. And she spent special time with me. I remember sort of walking me around. Uh, she would... Once the cinder blocks were up about a little over my head, she walked me through and there was like framing in the walls and she would walk me through holding my hand and like, look, okay, this is where your, this is where your room's gonna be and there's like two holes in the wall, there's windows and then here's where your brother's gonna be, here's where your other brother's gonna be, here's the bathroom and none of it still made sense to me. But she walked me through it every single day and as we leaned over every night, I remember looking at this saying, what is it that they can see that I do not, because I'm not, they were so excited about it and I was like, I don't see it. What is it that they see? that I don't see, that they are so excited about. By the way, I think that's the question that people should be asking about us. What is it that we see that we're so excited about that they don't see? But the problem is I think a lot of American Christians are, are looking at the, at the, are excited about the exact same things that everyone else is excited about. And they have a lot of anxiety about the exact same things that everyone else has anxiety about. And here's the thing about missionaries and about my mom when I was 12. They're gonna to come together. Um, their gift to me and the missionary's gift to the cities that they visited was not some theological message. It was new eyes. It was a new way of looking at the world around them. Um, it was from my mother that I think for the first time I gained a true understanding of the gift of the missionary like Paul and Barnabas. It's not just the message of God that they bring. They bring the eyes of God. They bring, uh, they can see the world that God is building. And they are like, it's almost like they're, they're men with sight living in a, in, a, in a village full of blind people. And they're the only ones that can see. And they're trying to get everyone, they're trying to describe to everyone else what they can see. And open their eyes so that they can see it as well. And not everything that they can see can be fully grasped by those around them but they know that one day this idea that, that, that they only have the spiritual eyes to see will be experienced by everyone. They know, they know that the forest is coming, that the field's days are numbered. They know what the house is going to look like when the 12-year-old kid can't. They are the ones that see it. Jesus is the very first missionary. The mother holding the hand of the 12-year-old and whispering in his ear, we're home. Do you see it? And Martha says, I don't see it. And Jesus looks at her and says, look, Resurrection is here. I am the resurrection. Everything that you have been waiting for is here. And it's time. And you can stop waiting and you can stop looking and we can get started now. I want you, so with this perspective of the Jewish people and resurrection in the eyes of God with the missionaries, I want you to now, with, armed with all of that, I, I, I want you to read this again. The message of resurrection that Paul and Barnabas proclaimed in the synagogue. Listen to it with first century Jewish eyes now, ears now. 
But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. This is a message of hope. This is not just like, yeah, they killed him, but he's still king because he undied. That's not what's happening. He's telling them everything that you have ever hoped for the world, that the world would find its king, that would usher in perfect peace, that would, that would set the prisoners free. All of that is now here. You know what we call this? Like when, when somebody sees something and then nobody else can see, like and it changes everything. It's called an apocalypse, an apocalyptic event. This year, 2020, is a bit of an apocalypse. People say it's like, it's, it's, apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world, but it kind of does in the same way. Not like you're thinking, no. Not like movie, end of the world. It's this whole, it's, it's the end of your world. It's uh, you suddenly see the way things will be in the future and you no longer are interested in what was. And the word apocalypto is a word that means unveiling, okay? Um, The resurrection of Jesus for the Jewish people was the end of their world. It was an apocalypse. The early Christians were an apocalyptic people. They knew everything because of Jesus had now changed, and they no longer cared about these kingdoms. They no longer cared about these leaders. They no longer cared about all that. God's future was entering in. Their king was here And they could now live in the world, in the forest that was growing while they were still in the field. They they now could live in anticipation of what was coming and they could continue working towards that. And now their ethics, suddenly their, their old moral boundaries of the law, the paper law and all that, all that fell away and suddenly they realized, okay, our new ethical standard, how it will be in the kingdom, how it is in the presence of God, that's how we will make it on earth. That's how it shall be. God will make it that way through us. We will partner with God. We will set the prisoner free. We will bring peace and justice. We will feed the poor. We will reconcile. We will live in peace. We will love our enemies. We will turn the other cheek. And they did. Are we now? Not so much. But they did. And what they accomplished was incredible. Have you ever seen all these stories about money head? Have you ever seen, um, oh yeah, have you ever seen those, those, uh, those so like a, like a show where there's, it's, it's a common theme I would always see in a show where there's like, it's like your first day at a new class and there's like, you get to class and there is this person who gets up to start speaking and, uh, and, and they're, they're like, I'm their professor, I'm Professor Snicklefritz and they write their name on the board and they start teaching and they're like making orders, can you shut the door for me? Um, I want you to pass out these papers and I want you, and they start putting all these orders in for all the people and everyone's like listening and they're really paying close attention and they're like, okay, okay, okay. And suddenly after about 10, 15 minutes, this other, this other lady walks in the door and she walks in and she kind of looks at him and she looks at the class and she goes, what's going on? And he goes, who are you? And she goes, I'm the professor. And suddenly he starts panicking and runs out of the room, right? Like, I think there's even like pranks, like YouTube pranks that I've seen. Um, I love that because that, that right there is the closest that, that those students will have ever experience to uh, an apocalyptic event. Suddenly, in a m- moment, in an instant, everything shifted and changed. They were like, 
I have allegiance to this professor. Yes, I will do whatever you say. I need this grade. I, this is my future. I'm working towards this. Suddenly someone else walks in and they no longer care. You would be stupid to now listen to this person. They no longer matter. All of their authority has fallen and they have run screaming out of the room. Or laughing. Uh, that's an apocalyptic event. Um, it's an unveiling. And you would no more continue to obey false professors than Jewish Christians would continue to honor the political rulers over them. And I think Christians need to hear that. Um, the church is and has always been an apocalyptic community. This was an invitation to be part of a new world by entering into this apocalyptic com uh, community. One of the words for community is the word polis. Uh, it's in the word polis is like metropolis. It's, it's the word for city. So the church is a city within a city. Um, it's a new community of people living in a different way under a different rule of a different king. And this community is to do things differently in such a way that the world looks at us and says, well, I never really thought that was possible. If you read Acts chapter four and how the Christians were living, it was shocking. And in fact, the documents, the papyrus that we have from the first century where they're writing about the Christians, they're shocked by how the Christians will live, would live. How Christians didn't care about the honor status system. They didn't care about power. They didn't care about money. They cared about love. They cared about community. They cared about the poor. They cared about the sick. They cared about the babies that were being, being exposed and abandoned outside and they gathered them all up. They cared about the women who had been thrown out of their houses and they brought them in. And they build this outcast army of these churches that were massive and full of outcasts, which made them all the insiders. That's a huge deal. Like, that's a shocking idea. And so the missionaries were not running around trying to convince people to pray a prayer. They weren't trying to get people to improve themselves. They weren't trying to get people to live more morally or accept some theological concept. Although all of these things are the natural effects of what they were doing. What they were doing was inviting people into a new apocalyptic community that had seen something that no one else had seen. That's all they were doing. And the church was a protest. It was a protest that like we are out the resurrection of Jesus was the end of your world. It was the end of it. You guys, the, the work of the church is, should always center upon the apocalyptic invitation to the community. Like we're a new people, we're not gonna do things like, like you've seen done in other places. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And this is, should be on the front of our minds. And this is how we should be striving to live. And right now, you have people, especially in, in, in election season, you have people all over the country trying to convince you that they are the solution to injustice and death and destruction, and, and, and we keep thinking that somehow the next old white guy is going to solve this. And none of them are. Because they can't. The early church knew, actually, that it was the little brown man who was so powerful. The little humble Middle Eastern man whom God raised to life and who lived this life of utter humility, powerless in his day, to the powerful at least. Um, his life was a protest, his death was a protest, his resurrection was a protest, and his community 
was an active living protest. So honestly, as far as the election goes, like I said earlier today on the interweb, you can feel free to change the four horsemen in the middle of the apocalypse if you'd like to, but never forget that our life of protest against these empires is going to continue long after this is over. We will continue to love those that they want us to hate. We will continue to spread the table for the outcasts. We will continue to work for the healing of those whom society has forgotten. And we will continue to undermine every move of the powerful because we serve the one who has the ultimate power and who spent his time washing the feet of traveling immigrants. I'm not interested in preserving that kingdom that, that, that they're trying to preserve. As an apocalyptic community, we see the future, we know what is coming, and we live for that. Our work transcends theirs because we have seen the future of the resurrection of Christ. And at its present, it is but a mere sapling, and it's growing everywhere at once. It is all over the universe, it is all over the world, and eventually it will spread and it will grow and it will become this kingdom that we never believed could possibly exist. And the whole time we will be declaring Jesus is king. That's not king, Jesus is king. That's not your king, Jesus is your king. And we'll just say this as we serve, we'll proclaim Jesus is king over and over and over again. And then one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, they're right, Jesus was right, Jesus is king. Violence is not the way. The only thing that they can offer, the only thing that even both sides of our own nation, not to mention all the elections going on around the world, the only thing that holds up their promises, and by the way, they cannot do what they say they're gonna do. It's like every single person who wants to lead you is holding on to some, sort of like, a, like an aspect of Jesus, like a caricature. You know what a caricature is? It's like this big drawing, painting of somebody, like, it's, like their nose is big or they've got a big hat or a big, just accentuating something to make it look like them. And so our leaders are accentuating little different parts of Jesus. Well, I can bring about justice. Well, I can bring about quality and I can bring about this and, and they're grabbing these little attributes which are all actually belong to Jesus but when you actually back up and you look at the big picture of them they're laughable and comical in, in the way they're going about it because they look nothing like Jesus in the end because every one of these things that they're claiming that they can do they can only perform if they have the power of the sword sort of poking at you the whole time that is their big threat to you it's the sword it's the sword it's the sword and Jesus comes dragging a cross and he says I don't need the sword Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. This is the way. Forgiveness. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I will allow myself to be broken and poured out for them. And Jesus gives us the cross. That is our way. And so all of the life of Christianity is protest. They can't do what they say they're going to do. Jesus can. And so, if you guys would, I would like to end today with our collect prayer and then be on our way. We're, we're gonna sort of discontinue communion for a while as people gather in here because it's a little exclusive having people not be able to take it and have to take their masks off and all that. So we're just gonna put that aside and maybe practice it in the house churches. So if you guys, will you guys do the colic prayer with me? You stand with me and do this nice and loud with me, okay? Um, oh, did I break something? Yeah, I broke the video. Okay, here we go. <laughs> do this with me. God, who makes all things new, renew our hearts and minds. Bring us to unity in the spirit and in faith through your resurrection. May we become a people who attains the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, bringing your kingdom to earth. Amen.
Thank you all for, uh, for joining us. I can't wait to see you all soon. Grace and peace. Love you all.